In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Imagine if it was that easy. Like, all you had to do was take refuge in the three jewels and all sentient beings would attain Buddhahood. Good evening and welcome to class number something of our course on taking the mind as the bath. I finally find a reference to that in tonight's class, uh, which is my reminder to include it in next week. But uh, so tonight, let's um, we start out. I'll start out with uh, this reading from uh, the, f the book called Fathoming the Mind, Inquiry and Insight in Dujum Lingpa's Vajra Essence. The section called A Serviceable Mind. <clears throat> and um, this is the most recent book by Alan Wallace. And it's uh, the second in a pair of books that he did on Dujum Lingpa's Vajra Essence. Although we, going through all these readings, you see that uh, he was influenced by the teachings in the Vajra Essence all along for many years, having received them many years ago from his guru, Gelcho Rinpoche, and uh, translated the text and the commentary by Gelcho Rinpoche on those teachings. And uh, the two books are still in the mind, which is focused on shamatha, as presented in uh, Dujum Lingpa's Vajra Essence, and uh, Fathoming the Mind, which is the most recent one, as I said, and is focused on uh, insight, uh, not the usual sort of vipassana that we're used to, but sort of Dzogchen version. And... Um, Dujum Lingpa lived, I think, like in the 17th or 18th century and had a vision of uh, this emanation of Padmasambhava. And uh, had a long Q&A <laughs> uh, with this vision and received uh, a short little text called the Sharp Vajra of awareness and uh, then writes this commentary called the Vajra Essence on that text which goes through the entire Buddhist path from Shamatha to Vipassana to uh, preliminary Vajrayana practices, outer four reminders, inner the four nundros and uh, development stage practice and completion stage practice of uh, visualization 
that's the development stage practice and then uh, inner yogas completion stage and then uh, Dzogchen the two phases of Dzogchen practice Trekcha and Tugel <clears throat> so at the beginning of this second and most recent book he gives what I found to be a really wonderful overview of the whole path of meditation which uh, we see presented in many of the other readings uh, but uh, in this case I, I found it to be really uh, very uh, thorough and clear and precise summary. So let's go through that and then we'll look a bit at the presentation of shamatha practice from the four measurables, which I thought was awesome. So the path of meditation in this text, the practice of Vipassana is referred to as taking ultimate reality, i.e. dharmata, that's his translation of the Sanskrit dharmata, ultimate reality. So we have relative reality is dharma, and ultimate reality is dharmata. And a nice metaphor for this is cutting down the tree of ignorance with the axe of wisdom, and to chop down this huge tree, you must first be able to plant your feet in a firm stance means having a solid foundation in ethics, and then you must be able to swing your axe. <laughs> it's really make milky in the metaphor, and repeatedly strike the right spot. This means meditative concentration, samadhi. These are the three wheels, shila, samadhi, and prajna. Finally, you must have a sharp axe that can cut through ignorance, which is wisdom, prajna. In order to derive the full benefits of Vipassana, the essential preparation is the practice of shamatha, with the goal of rendering the body and mind serviceable, relaxed, stable, clear. Those are the three main qualities. On this basis, one is well prepared to venture into the profound discoveries and insights of Vipassana, which, unlike shamatha, invariably entails an element of inquiry, active analysis, examination. Such inquiry may be primarily experiential, as in the four close applications of mindfulness, which uh, can be used as a Vipassana practice, or it may be deeply analytical, as in the Madhyamaka or middle way approach, where one analyzes the relationship between the self and the skandhas, and one analyzes uh, dharmas using the famous four arguments of emptiness of the middle way of Nagarjuna um, approaches to Vipassana. He leaves out the uh, Vajrayana version. Three types of shamatha. Shamatha is exemplified by three practices that have been thoroughly described. Elsewhere, these are mindfulness of breathing, taking the impure mind as the path, and awareness of awareness. And uh, these are three names for the three types of shamatha practice that are presented in uh, many other of his readings that we've gone through and will go through and many other texts in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and sometimes have different names. Mindfulness of breathing as an example of uh, shamatha with, a, with a, uh, an object, a d definite object. And uh, taking the impure mind as the path is equivalent to 
um, shamatha on the nature of the mind, which is using a um, an object that is without characteristics, the mind. And then finally, awareness of awareness is shamatha without an object. So you'll see these called different things in different places. <clears throat> Buddha taught it's our close identification with or grasping to the five skandhas or aggregates, uh, otherwise known, it can be grouped as body, speech, and mind that fundamentally makes us vulnerable to suffering, i.e. clinging to them as the basis for a self. In his pith instructions on Shamatha presented in the foolish dharma of an idiot clothed in mud and feathers. <laughs> sort of humorous title for another text by Dujam Lingpa. An idiot clothed in mud and feathers. <laughs> Writes that in following the Shamatha practice of taking the impure mind as the path meditators observe their thoughts over there, as if over there, as if somewhere uh, separate from the thinker, the watcher. And the analogy is like an old herdsman on a wide open plain watching his calves and sheep from afar. And just keeping track of them, letting them graze where they may so that they get appropriate nutrients and exercise. Uh, but just keeping a light eye on them so they don't wander off or get hurt or get eaten by wolves or things like that. The theme of observing, and, and so that's how we watch our thoughts. We just look at them from afar, sort of disinterested with the content of what they're doing and uh, just sort of keeping a very wide net on our thoughts. Very much the Vajrayana approach. We don't have to like capture our thoughts or uh, get rid of our thoughts or anything else. Just watch them from afar. The theme of observing the tactile sensations of the body, which he calls the inner speech of the mind expressing itself in discursive thoughts, and of, uh, sorry, these are three different things and of observing all mental processes and mental consciousness itself as if from afar occurs throughout each of the three shamatha practices. Each of the three stages of practices has these three elements to it, uh, body, speech, and mind. And so with body, we observe the sensation of the body, the energy of the sense of touch, that pervades the body. With speech, we observe discursive thoughts as being of the essence of speech, or being the essence of speech. And, um, and then lastly, for mind, we observe the awareness itself, the watcher. The first of these mindfulness of breathing is taught in three phases. <clears throat> which he goes through in many places, including the other reading, first focusing on the sensations of respiration throughout the entire body, secondly on the sensations of the rise and fall of the abdomen with each in and out breath, and thirdly and finally on the sensations of the breath at the nostrils. 
So these are three different ways of doing mindfulness of breathing technique that you can find in different traditions, usually set out as separate practices. But um, in this tradition, they're presented as a continuum of uh, going from sort of more uh, sort of concrete of an object of the breath to a less, less and less concrete objectification of the breath. So a more refined object. First is the entire body, and then just the, the part of the body involved with breathing, the abdomen rising and falling, and then just the tactile sensation where the breath enters and leaves the nostrils or on uh, where the breath hits the upper lip sometimes is used. By closely applying mindfulness to the sensations of breathing or respiration, one observes these bodily sensations in a detached manner, thereby counteracting the deeply ingrained tendency to identify with the sensations, which is the essence of the, of the practices, non-identifying with content, watching from afar in any particular aspect of the practice. That is the key aspect. Thereby, uh, sorry, in this way one achieves some degree of separation from the body, which can open the way for the radical shift in perspective that takes place in a much more advanced Vajrayana practice known as isolation from the body. Anybody ever hear this phrase, isolation from the body? Isolation of speech and isolation of mind. In, in the Dzogchen tradition, what they do if you enter into a formal strict Dzogchen practice with a teacher is they put you, uh, they lock you up in isolation, in a solitary confinement. And there's three stages of that, called different versions of that isolation of body and then speech and mind. First, they, they just physically lock you up and then they gag you. And then they physically restrain your mind from thinking. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding. The last one is waterboarding, right? Oh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Painful. Um, so these are references to uh, advanced Vajrayana practices that make up the first few stages of what's called completion stage practice with form or with complexity. Um, there's two types of completion stage practice in Vajrayana. One is completion stage practice of simplicity, which is completely formless. Trungpa Rinpoche is famous for teaching this widely. He teaches formless meditation. You can see references to this in the Profound Treasuries, primarily in the third volume, but formless meditation where you just let go. And uh, if you've ever done the Sadhana Mahamudra, that's what happens after the um, mantra section, is you just let go into formless medita uh, meditation. Um, and then the other one is uh, working with the inner subtle energies of the body, using various yogic practices that include the inner heat and uh, dream yoga and advance things way off the charts like that. Second shamatha practice known as taking the impure mind is the path or settling the mind in its natural state, more commonly referred to as this one, settling the mind in its natural state. 
is the principal method taught in the preceding section of Dujamlingpa's Vajra Essence, and this entails observing the movements of thought. So he's referring to the section that he's gone, that he's commented on in the book called Stealing the Mind, the first of the two books on the Vajra Essence of his. This entails observing the movements of thoughts rather than identifying with them. <clears throat> I'm not sure why he says that, because that was one of the aspects of all the different types of shamatha, but it's a much higher evolution that could be seen as analogous to the Vajrayana practice of isolation from speech. But basically, there's nothing else you do other than watching the thoughts. You're not dealing with breath or anything like that. You're just watching thoughts in the sense of seeing thoughts as the energetic movement of the mind. And uh, you may see references to this in the Mahamudra tradition where it's called identifying stillness, the still mind, and identifying the moving mind. It's usually easier to identify the moving mind first because that's so prevalent in our experiences, the thinking process. And then sort of by elimination, you can then begin to have an intimation of the still mind as being that aspect of our mind that is the sort of container or the background within which the movement happens. And a little hint is that you can identify this by sort of first realizing that when you look at your thoughts, it's as if you're looking um, outward towards your thoughts as if they're displayed on the screen in your mind. And the still aspect of mind can uh, be identified by looking sort of backwards in your, in your sort of uh, mental sphere, backwards into the sort of um, environment within which you are looking from. The third practice is awareness of awareness, for which Padmasambhava provides a detailed explanation in natural liberation. Padmasambhava's teachings on the six bardos, where he calls it shamatha without signs, which is the more common name for this. In this practice, one releases grasping to all the subjective impulses of the mind and observes the flow of mental consciousness itself, thereby counteracting the habit of identifying with any aspect of the ordinary mind. And it's very difficult initially to distinguish between looking, observing thoughts and observing the awareness that observes thoughts. And it really, at least in my from in my experience, it takes some time to be able to see the difference between those two and be able to figure out how to look at awareness. Though certainly not identical with uh, isolation of mind, the practice of awareness of awareness can, in its ultimate evolution, lead to the direct realization of pristine awareness. So the idea in Vajrayana is the short path or the quick path or the direct path. And so Vajrayana uses this technique as a springboard to um, experiencing the breakthrough of the substrate consciousness, which is what is looking at looking, looking at itself, sort of turning the substrate consciousness in on itself. 
um, which requires first identifying the substrate consciousness and then breaking through the substrate consciousness to pristine awareness or, or wisdom mind purely by just turning that substrate consciousness in on itself as opposed to in other traditions there's all sorts of more complicated ways of breaking through the conceptual barrier of the substrate or alia vishnana consciousness to enlightened mind once breaking through to this level of primordial consciousness awareness of awareness could become analogous to the svajrana completion stage realization of the indwelling mind of clear light <coughs> and this is the galupa terminology for for primordial wisdom mind which is enigma term and is a sort of a loose translation of rikpa which you probably have encountered this term rikpa in the uh, Dzogchen tradition there's a smooth progression among these three shamatha practices engaging in mindfulness of breathing we withdraw our attention from the environment and turn it inward to the space of the body. Um, and uh, perhaps his his uh, reference to being aware of the body is not that familiar with with us. Um, certainly, we've experienced like body scans, and we've talked about mindfulness of body, but. Uh, Probably many of us have not actually practiced awareness of the body, and uh, it's it's a, a very helpful way of stabilizing the mind and the attention, and it's uh, commonly used in the Vajrayana tradition, since the Vajrayana is uh, um, uses a lot of uses the energy of the body as a springboard for uh, progressing along the path. Well, the prob primary object of mindfulness consists of, the, consists of the sensations correlated with the respiration throughout the body. We also use introspection, the second of those two, the two main faculties of mindfulness and introspection, to monitor the flow of the mind to see if it is falling into lax laxity or excitation. Progressing to settle the mind in its natural state, we further withdraw our attention from all five sensory domains, including tactile sensations, and limit it to the mental domain alone. The primary object of mindfulness is the space of the mind and whatever thoughts, images, and other mental events arise within this space. So, <clears throat> um, in, in this tradition, these stages are mapped out as deliberate stages that one would know about and study and be instructed in and then actually apply in one's practice. In, uh, in, in uh, the way Trungpa Rinpoche taught meditation practice, I think he's not nearly as explicit about these stages. Um, I don't think he's explicit at all about these stages, but if you read his presentations and study his presentation carefully and do the practice, I think you find that this is in the, there, that presentation, and that it happens naturally, this progression. Maybe not as as um, this whole part of uh, um, withdrawing from the five senses 
is probably a little bit foreign because we, we always have this idea of connecting with the senses but really what we're doing is we're connecting with the mental experience of the senses let's see in awareness of awareness we withdraw our awareness even Eric? further oh yes ma'am <laughs> does that mean then that we're drawing our awareness away from the mental experience of the senses no we're we're drawing them into the mental experience of the senses in the second phase. Okay, thank you. Yeah. And then in this third phase, however, one would then then begin to look at the looker. Awareness of awareness, we withdraw our awareness even further. And instead of the objects in the mental domain, we invert awareness exclusively upon itself. And uh, rarely are we that explicit about doing that in our practice until people uh, are entered into Vajrayana practice, whereupon you realize that this is the essence of our meditation practice. It's the beginning, the ground, the path, and the fruition. You might imagine this to be like drinking a, a double shot of <laughs> this is a funny analogy of espresso, so that you're wide awake and then <laughs> it's like this the most ridiculous thing in the world to do and then <laughs> during a sensory deprivation tank in which you're completely isolated from your environment in, in your body imagine your mind becomes completely quiet how would that happen if you did the double shot of espresso I don't know so you have to have a good imagination here but at the same time you're wide awake with absolutely nothing appearing to your awareness what do you know? You know that you're still, you still know that you are aware. Anybody here ever do a, a sensory deprivation tank? I did one once. <laughs> it's oh, interesting. I would love to try it with some espresso. I think it's, <laughs> it, um, but I used, I used to go caving, spelunking when I was a kid. And it's much the same. It's it's unbelievable, but yeah. of course I wasn't drinking espresso then. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's neat. You could watch Altered States again instead. Say that again. You could what? Al you could watch Altered States again, the movie by the same deprivation tank with William Hart. But he was oh. thinking LSD, not uh, caffeine. Right, and he has like all these weird experiences, right? Uh, Right. Oh, I forgot about that movie. Wow, that was a long time. Cool. Thank you for for reminding of that. <clears throat> These three methods are like nested Russian dolls. In mindfulness of breathing, attention is focused primarily on the breath while introspectively noting and releasing involuntary thoughts and images when they arise. So his images of, of Russian dolls is that... Um, each of the practices includes the other two, uh, the the next ones. Uh, let's see. Meanwhile, you're also being aware. You're also aware of being aware. You're confident that you're not unconscious, even in the first stage of mindfulness of breathing. So awareness of awareness is inherent in mindfulness of breathing, as it is while being aware of anything else. And when you move 
to settling the mind as natural state, the outer rush into all awareness. So the body falls away and you focus on the mind alone. So when he says body, we would like translate that as mindfulness of the breath falls away. And so this is also something that happens in the progression of our meditation that's not really talked about that openly, but is definitely part of our tradition. And that is usually taught to meditation instructors as they, that gradually the, uh, the, um, objectification of the breath or the, the focus on the breath as the object in shamatha in our practice dissolves. And we're no longer really focusing on the breath. Uh, let's see, and you focus on the mind alone, but this also entails awareness of awareness. Finally, the Russian doll, all of the space of the mind, its contents fall away, and you're left with the nucleus that has always been present, the awareness of awareness. This knowing has been reached by a process of subtraction, by releasing all the other kinds of knowing, you're left only with the knowing of your awareness. Three characteristics. Shamatha can be described as cultivating balance among three key characteristics. First is relaxation. Can't overemphasize. Um, in our current world, scientists, let's see, when people are aroused and, and focused using effort to sustain a high degree of attention, they soon become exhausted. Modern life is a cycle of alternating arousal and exhaustion. To break the psyche, you must learn how to cultivate a deepening sense of release, relaxation, and comfort in body and mind without losing the degree of clarity with which you began. So, we, um, Alan is very explicit about relaxation being the essential first stage. Not very many teachers or traditions present that of just like relaxing at the beginning. Um, I feel like in our tradition we don't really present relaxing at the beginning, but it's sort of an, an inevitable experience if you do prolonged meditation where either you can drive yourself crazy trying to like control your mind as it goes wild as you're sitting day after day in a week-long retreat, or you can just relax and, and uh, sort of let go of the struggle. And hopefully you found out that uh, there's a benefit to relaxing. Um, to break the cycle, you must learn how to cultivate a deepening sense of release, relaxation, comfort and body mind without losing degree of clarity. Uh, and then he talks about the supine position, lying down. He does this all the time. And the Buddha did teach meditation in all of the so-called four postures of human being, which is lying down, sitting, standing, and walking. Trungpa um, Rinpoche was not fond of of uh, people lying down and meditating because it would lead very easily to falling asleep. And uh, it certainly does, but it's certainly possible to push through that. And uh, I've, I've uh, known people who have physical problems where they can't sit up and they've meditated lying down and they find that after a period of, yes, falling asleep initially, that then they're able to do it. And uh, that's what he encourages because it does produce a very profound relaxation, as we know. Um, It's as if you're inviting your body to fall asleep, but your respiration gradually gradually settles in a rhythm, never losing clarity. Awareness is like falling asleep lucidly. Your body falls asleep 
your senses eventually implode <laughs> and your mind falls asleep and you keep the light of awareness on. Good luck there. On the basis of such deep relaxation, that's the first quality. The second uh, balance is to cultivate stability. Developing a continuity of attention free of excitation and lethargy while never sacrificing a sense of ease and relaxation, which is the opposite of a habitually tight focused effort. Tension is maintained continuously with a deepening sense of ease that reinforces increased stability. We'll see uh, later, or we probably already have seen, we already have seen actually that there's two levels of uh, excitation and lethargy. There's a gross and a subtle level of those, and it's significant that there are those two levels and that they happen <clears throat> in the way that we encounter them and so forth. With the stable foundation, the third balance is to refine and enhance the vividness and acuity of relaxation without undermining the stability of attention. So the vividness or increasing vividness or clarity disturbs the stability, the stillness of mind. And so meditation is a, a matter of balance. And so, uh, we see this in the way that we talk about mindfulness and awareness, where uh, mindfulness has a certain precision and attention to detail and energetic uh, presence to it. And awareness is how we talk about relaxing and um loosening up the attention to detail and uh, it, it can it can entail that but uh, we we try to encourage an awareness that's a panoramic we talk about panoramic awareness as opposed to a relaxed state and um, normally when we shift into panoramic awareness we lose attention to detail um, so it's a, a little bit of learning how to balance attention to the detail of the physical sensation of breathing or posture at the same time as having panoramic awareness. The key practice of mindfulness of breathing, settling mind, natural state can be very synergistic in balancing these three aspects. Mindfulness of breathing, especially in the supine position, develops relaxation and stability and settling mind's natural state sharpens and refines the vividness of attention. Because in, in mindfulness of the mind, or settling the mind in its natural state, shamatha on the nature of the mind, we have to be very clear about our the mental content and uh, the progress in the meditation is becoming more and more clear about mental content. Dujum Lingpa's practice of shamatha called taking the impure mind as the path means taking our own mind. So this is what the title of the course is referring to, taking the mind as the path. And, and uh, he adds the word impure mind, which is sort of implicit, uh, often when we say mind. Um, taking our own minds with all their mental baggage, afflictions, grasping, neurosis, and so forth as the very path. Which is what Trung Prinshe talks about all the time, working with the baggage of our psychological uh, 
presentation. This simple method of Shama details withdrawing your attention from all sensory fields and focusing single-pointedly on the domain of the mind. Thoughts, memories, dreams, and so on, which are undetectable by the five physical senses and by all instruments of technology, single-pointedly direct your attention to the domain of mental experience or whatever arises. Let it be there, whether mental afflictions virtues or non-virtues arise, simply observe their nature and allow them to release themselves without following after thoughts of the past and being drawn into thoughts about the future. And then he uh, he gave that a technique in what I read during the meditation practice where he said, bring a, an image to mind intentionally and uh, focus on that image in the space of the mind and like all things that we bring to mind, it will gradually dissolve as, as a potential object. And if we're um, alert enough to not immediately fill it with something else, we'll be aware of the space of the mind, which is the aspect of minding, so to speak, that goes on in our mind. The quality of um, consciousness of content. So being aware of what consciousness is or the light of consciousness. Synopsis of the stages. Um, entry into taking the impure mind as the path is defined as the, by the experience of distinguishing between the stillness of awareness and the movements of the mind. Ordinarily, when a thought arises, we have the sense of thinking it and our attention is diverted to the referent of the thought. So usually we um, we feel like we are thinking a thought and we're, we're focusing our um, conceptual attention on what's called the referent, meaning what is the thought about. Similarly, when a desire arises, there's a cognitive fusion of awareness and the desire, so awareness is drawn to the object of desire. In such cases, our very sense of identity merges with the mental processes, with our attention riveted on the object of thought, desire, emotion. This practice, we do our best to sustain the stillness of our awareness. And from the perspective of stillness and clarity, we illuminate the thoughts, memories, desires, and so forth that arise in the mind. And the technique usually is described as experiencing the energy of the movement of thought in the mind. Thought uh, um, being a general term that includes memories, plans, emotions, and so forth. But sort of feeling the energy of thoughts. And uh, certainly when we have a lot of thoughts, we can feel that energy. But when the mind slows down a bit in meditation, it then requires more uh, precision of attention, which is the natural progression in all of these different styles of meditation. Uh, the, the breath the breath slows down and gets more soft, gets softer. And so you, it, it requires a more subtle attention to identify the breath, and similarly with the thoughts in the mind. They become more sort of nebulous, and it requires more clarity of awareness to identify thoughts. Uh, let's see, distinguishing between the stillness of awareness and the coming and goings of the mind is the entry into the practice of taking the impure mind as the path. <clears throat> and this is the first 
exercise in Mahamudra practice is identifying stillness and movement. Then it goes through the scheme of four types of mindfulness, totally different than the four foundations of mindfulness. But it's this cool scheme of, of a progression of mindfulness that's found uh, in both the Mahamudra and Dzogchen tradition and places. Um, but not, it's not that common. And uh, probably this is the first time many of us have seen this. Continuing the practice, four types of mindfulness are experienced in sequence. First, single-pointed mindfulness, which occurs when you simultaneously experience the stillness of awareness and the movement of the mind. Simultaneously experiencing the background and the foreground or the content. This is like watching images coming and going and moving, hearing the soundtrack while never reifying those ex these experiences. That is taking them to be inherently real things or getting caught up in the drama. So you're aware of thoughts appearing in the space of the mind, which means you're also aware of the space of the mind. As you grow more accustomed to letting your awareness rest in its own place, accompanied by a deepening sense of loose release and non-grasping, together with the clarity of awareness illuminating the space of the mind. And the key term there is the release, as opposed to tightening up and getting more sort of effortful and constraining with the mind, which is common in the tradition, uh, the traditional version of meditation in the Theravadan tradition and in the uh, practice of absorption meditation. So you get tighter and tighter. In this case, we release the mind, meaning we release the conceptual process of the mind. And the conceptual process of the mind is what conceives of there being a, a thinker and a thought. A deepening sense of loose release and non-grasping together with the clarity of awareness illuminating the space of the mind. You enter into an effortless flow of the simultaneous awareness of stillness and motion. And this second stage is called manifest mindfulness. <coughs> and that which is referred to as manifest is the clarity of awareness, the illuminating quality of the mind, which is the main uh, aspect of the second of the three types of shamatha that he's gone through. Eruptions of memories, desires, and mental afflictions surge up periodically rather than continuously. And over time, implying that earlier they, they surge up continuously, as we all know. And over time, your mind gradually settles in its natural state like a blizzard in a snow globe gradually dissipates and settles into transparency. In the third stage of mindfulness, awareness of the body and the five senses withdraws into single-pointed awareness of the space of the mind. And the, the, I find that the way that he describes this implies like that we're like uh, tightening up and like constricting our awareness and our mind. And uh, I, I don't think that's the implication here. I, just, I think that it's a a further um, natural progression where the dualistic quality of stillness and movement um, erodes. 
You become oblivious to your body and environment. Prior to this stage, thoughts and other mental appearances became fewer and subtler until finally they all dissolve in your ordinary mind and, it's, and all its concomitant mental processes go dormant. And this corresponds to the absence of mindfulness. <laughs> I'm practicing the absence of mindfulness. <laughs> Very advanced practice. <laughs> Total mindlessness. Bear in mind that the terms translate as mindfulness in Pali sati and Sanskrit smriti and Tibetan drenpa. That, that's pronounced drenpa, like a T, like as if it's T-R-E-N-P-A. Primarily connote recollection or bearing in mind. Now you're not recalling or holding anything in mind. Your coarse mind has gone dormant as if you'd fallen asleep, dreamless sleep, but at the same time, your awareness is luminously clear. Trump Rinpoche, in one place, is you, place uses this term, recollecting, and, uh, and then he, he answers our unspoken question of like, what are we recollecting? He says, we're recollecting the present, which is an interesting way of basically talking about the same thing. The course mental factor of mindfulness that allowed you to reach this state has also gone dormant. Hence, it's called the absence of mindfulness. So, the course aspect of mindfulness of meaning the the way of uh, sort of fixing the attention on an object has dissolved. The whole dualistic framework has dissolved. When you're in this transitional state, you're aware only of the sheer vacuity of the space of the mind. This is the substrate, the alia. And you're aware of it through the alia vijnana. The consciousness of this vacuity is the substrate consciousness, alia vijnana. <laughs> he gives this analogy of the computer, <coughs> which I'll skip. And... Uh, When your, he says, when your coarse mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness, coarse mindfulness that brought you to this point has, has gone dormant, has to go dormant, as if you had fainted. But you're wide awake. This is a brief transitional phase, and it's important not to get stuck here. For if you do so for a prolonged period, your intelligence may atrophy like an unused muscle. So this is this phase of shamatha that's talked about in many places of like the sand trap of shamatha. Not getting stuck in this uh, dull shamatha stage. This is like being uh, lucid in a state of dreamless sleep with your awareness absorbed in the sheer vacuity of the state of the mind. Space is full of potential, but for the time being, that potential remains dormant. And finally, there's the fourth type of mindfulness, self-illuminating mindfulness. And this occurs when you invert your awareness upon itself and the substrate consciousness illuminates and knows itself. So when he says you invert your awareness, at this point your awareness is the substrate awareness or consciousness upon itself, meaning upon the substrate, and, this, and it illuminates and knows itself. And then he refers to places in the Pali Canon where the Buddha talked about <clears throat> um, an aspect of mind that he feels is basically the same as the substrate consciousness, and it does seem that way. 
it's hard to like prove it, but the Buddha characterized this mind as brightly shining. And it's rare. There's like two or maybe three places in the Pali Canon where the Buddha talks about the mind as being inherently pure and brightly shining and naturally pure. The subtle dimension of uh, mental consciousness is experientially realized with the achievement of shamatha corresponding to the threshold of the first dhyana, which is Sanskrit for jhana in Pali, or meditative stabilization, the first absorption. Resting in this state of consciousness, you experience three distinct qualities of awareness, blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual. And most important, this awareness is called service of both your body and mind are infused with an unprecedented degree of pliancy or suppleness, so they're fit for use as you wish, your body and mind. And he talks about entry into the first dhyana, which I'll skip. I'll skip the quote from the Samdhita Machina, the benefits of this meditation. Uh, when you emerge from this, the body-mind upgrade. <laughs> You've had an upgrade to your operating system of your body and mind, and you can employ it in your daily life. It's a radical psychophysiological shift. <clears throat> the whole energy currents in the body shift by achieving shamatha, and it produces the first stage of uh, what Vajrayana uh, completion stage practices are meant to achieve, where the the energy currents in the body stabilize and become focused in a particular way. And this uh, gives you the ability to be free of the five obscurations of hedonic craving, malice, laxity, dullness, excitation, anxiety, and afflictive uncertainty. <coughs> They go largely dormant, not completely, but largely. There's an unprecedented pliancy and suppleness of body and mind during the formal meditation sessions and between them. And let's see. I'll skip in a couple of paragraphs on the next page. In the practice of settling the mind through the process of bringing full, clear awareness single-pointedly to the space of the mind and releasing all control over what appears there, you allow the mind to heal itself. This occurs simply by being gently aware of whatever arises without the grasping of aversion or desire, without identifying with thoughts. And this is sort of an explanation of the terminology of the natural state of the mind. Uh, resting the mind in its natural state. This idea being that um, when we when we are able to not attack the mind with all sorts of uh, disruptive things like uh, uh, major emotional upheavals and discursive thoughts and duality and things like that, the mind goes through this natural healing process. Keep in mind, it's not will, will not always be a smooth ride. All your angels and demons, the skeletons in your closet, will rise up to greet you and assault you, depending on how you relate to them, i.e. conceptually designate them. Uh, these cannot harm you or help you. And you're simply becoming lucid in the waking state, just like becoming lucid in a dream where there's all this shit going on, 
but none of it can actually do anything to you. Uh, let's see. It's a, skipping a paragraph, it's a natural kind of pranayama, which is breath yoga. And instead of regulating the breath as one would in classical practices of pranayama, here we're allowing the entire system of the subtle body-mind to balance and heal itself. I think that's probably it for this one. And why don't we uh, take a quick look at the, the section of the reading from the taboo of subjectivity called Excerpts from Exploring the Mind. I don't know if you guys have that handy. Uh, one of the earlier classes that we didn't get to, and the section on Padmasambhava and Conceptually Unstructured Awareness. Just to uh, sort of go further with this, uh, the third practice of awareness, of awareness. And according to the contemplative tradition of Padmasambhava, who was the progenitor of the Nyingma Dzogchen tradition, or one of the main ones, rather. Instead of first learning a theory of consciousness and using it to enter contemplation, one first seeks experiential insight into the nature of the mind. And I'm on page 11 of that excerpt called uh, Excerpts from Exploring the Mind and the Taboo of Subjectivity. One first seeks experiential insight into the nature of the mind, then derives one's theories from that. Thus, the first task is to settle one's mind in its natural state, achieve meditative stabilization, and then examine the nature of awareness. So this is a little bit of a uh, completing the sort of overview of shamatha vipassana in the tradition. A little touch on Vipassana here tonight. In meditative technique taught by Padmasambhava for seeking out the nature of consciousness, one's visual gaze is steadily directed at the space in front. Once this, the awareness is stabilized, one examines the very consciousness that has become steady and one begins questioning, is there something real that remains clearly and steadily? Or when observing consciousness, is there nothing to see? So the first practice in the uh, Vajrayana Vipassana system is looking at the mind, trying to identify the mind. Is the one who is directing the mind and the mind that is being directed the same, or are they distinct? So, we're doing an exercise and one part of our mind is saying, look at the other, some other aspect of mind. And so, have we two minds? Or is there like these two separate parts of our mind and one can look at the other? What's going on? If they're not different, is the one that truly exists the mind that is being directed? Temporarily adopting that hypothesis of like, well, it must be the part of my mind that's deciding what to do must be the real part of my mind. And the other must be like a, a mental projection of mind that I create when I want to look at my mind. Adopting that apostasy, this one observes what is the nature of that so-called mind. So then you turn yourself in on the looker. Is, there anywhere, is it anywhere to be found among external objects? 
of awareness know while steadily observing the consciousness of the one engaging in this training one examines whether the so-called mind even exists is it really there if you can't locate if you can't identify it and if it does exist well you, you sort of say well there's something there because uh, it's there's something going on it's undeniable that there's something going on in my mind <laughs> which is a funny phrase to begin with <clears throat> so does that going on have a shape if one thinks it may then one examines the mind carefully determine what that shape might be um, now shape for most of us is not that helpful i think location is more helpful is it can you identify like where is the looker looking from if one thinks it may have a shape or a location one then examines the mind carefully determine what that where that location is is it in your foot is it in your butt is it in your knees? Is it, is it in your elbows? Is it in your pinky? Is it in your neck? Or is it in your head? Um, if one concludes that it has no such physical location, then one then proceeds to examine whether the mind not, may not exist at all. If this were the case, how could one, how could something that does not exist since, uh, participate, engage in contemplative inquiry. You know, so the mind, we can't identify it, but there's something that's doing something that's sort of undeniable. If the mind is a non-entity, what is it that generates passions? Uh, passions, such passions as hatred. That's a little bit funny phrase. <laughs> passions like hatred. Hmm. Maybe there's something wrong with that one. Anyway, the idea, you know, obviously is what is it that generates emotions such as passion and hatred? If one concludes that the mind does not exist, is there not someone or something that drew the conclusion? What is it that knows that we know? You know, like if you say, well, I can't find my mind. Well, what is it that determined you couldn't find your mind? With this question in mind, <laughs> so to speak, one steadily observes whether the consciousness that ponders whether it exists in itself is the mind. If it does really exist, one would imagine it must be some kind of a thing. If so, what are its qualities? On the other hand, if it doesn't exist, who or what is it that thinks that it doesn't exist? In this way, one's awareness is drawn inward, grappling with and breaking down the conceptual constructs of the existence and non or non-existence of the mind. <clears throat> In such introspective inquiry, one also examines the origin, location, disappearance of mental phenomena, thoughts, emotions, images, memories. One examines, for example, whether a me mental events arise from the external environment, that they like come in through our senses and then we have like, they get appear in the mind, thoughts, or from the body. Is there like the spleen Right? Isn't that what they thought in the Middle Ages? The spleen like generates thoughts and one investigates the exact manner in which they arise moment by moment. Does it feel like thoughts like come up and go out? Or does it feel like they come down? Or do they come from behind you 
into the front of your vision you know it's there of locational position of the thoughts and does, does that change as you think what investigates the exact manner in which thoughts arise or move once they occur one investigates where they're present are they like in the body or are they like in front of our head if they're in the body where in addition one inquires whether the mind and thoughts are the same or different at times the mind is withdrawn from appearance seems to be empty and at times it engages with phenomena are those appearances and that emptiness the same or distinct and are the stillness and the activities in the mind the same or different if they're distinct when does this differentiation occur <laughs> when did it start did it start at a certain moment um, <clears throat> what is the demarcation between them you know so like this exercise of of uh, watching of uh, watching yourself do something is a, is a really helpful meditation of like moving your arm and like in your meditation you're sitting there and you have the project of watching yourself decide to move your arm and so you say okay I'm going to move my arm at a certain point in time. And maybe you say, okay, I'm going to move my arm at the count of three. And so you're watching your mind decide when to move your arm. You go one, two, three. And then you give your arm the command to move. And like, can you find like the place that decided that the, that actually sort of carried out the order of moving your arm can you find is that different than the place that gave the order to to move your arm and is that different from the place that said okay i'm going to give the order to move my arm <laughs> could go on endlessly i guess right but thoughts and other mental events cease how does that happen why did they all of a sudden stop plaguing me? Do they proceed from existence to non-existence? Do they go somewhere beyond our field of consciousness, like where all the socks go, like thoughts, like they're there. It's just we're not aware of them anymore. Do they depart? Do they leave in the same aspect as the one in which they were previously present, or do they depart in a more ethereal manner? Uh, let's see. Derek, yes. that, I, maybe I'm just missing something. This just sounds so much like Vipassana. Yes, this is Vipassana. Okay, this, is a little, okay. this is a little, little uh, excursion into Vipassana, I said, because okay. uh, okay. it came from earlier in the course where we were sort of covering the whole range. Right, 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 right. We jumped back. Okay, okay. I was yeah, like, and, okay. But usually we're not allowed to talk about Vipassana. We're focused on <laughs> Shomata. So okay. it's a little aberration. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. And then, uh, let's see, skipping the quote, he says, at this point, one's mentor is to offer the following guidance. Once you've calmed the compulsive thoughts in your mind right where they are, wherever the hell that is, already my mentor is telling me to do things I have no idea how to do. <laughs> I don't know where they are and the mind is unmodified I don't know where my mind is either what is unmodified versus a modified mind like when you modify your mind how do you 
do that? Is that like pasteurizing your mind? Homogenizing it? Um, when the mind is unmodified, isn't there emotionless stability? You know, so this is pointing out the stillness aspect of mind. When you're not doing anything with your mind, is there some wide open, uh, sort of vacant quality of awareness? Oh, <laughs> this is called shamatha, but it's not the nature of mind. It's a, a sort of function or aspect of mind. <clears throat> now steadily observe the very nature of your own mind that's being still. Is there a resplendent emptiness that is nothing? Talk about putting words in my mouth, in your mouth, right? Is it a resplendent emptiness that's nothing, that is ungrounded in the nature of any substance, shape, or color? Hint, hint. <laughs> that is called the empty essence of mind or quality of mind. Isn't there a luster of that emptiness, however, that's unceasing, clear, immaculate, soothing, luminous, as it were? That is called the luminous nature or quality of mind. Its essential nature is the indivisibility of sheer emptiness, not established as anything, and its unceasing vivid luster. Such awareness is resplendent and brilliant, so to speak. So those are the two qualities of the mind that are uh, said to be identifiable in some way by the mind <laughs> when you do this exercise. Skipping two paragraphs, he says, the beginning when practices for only short sessions. Uh, so this is the typical instruction when one does Mahamudra or Dzogchen practice. At first you do short sessions, which is very different than what, what Trungpa Rinpoche taught with Shamatha, which is like you do these unbearably long sessions, endless sessions, till you just get totally worn out, exhausted. But in this practice of, of Mahamudra or Dzogchen Vipassana, the idea is to keep it fresh, so to speak. Short sessions, but as one comes accustomed to the training, the duration of sessions are increased, and when bringing each session to an end, one slowly emerges from contemplation without losing the sense of unstructured awareness. So mingling that awareness with post-meditation, without distraction, without conceptual grasping, such unwavering mindfulness is to be maintained during all activities. And apart from that, there's nothing on which to meditate for the introduction of any artificial technique into such experience only obscures the conceptually unstructured nature of your experience. And following each session of contemplation, whatever ideation arises, one repeatedly lets it appear and vanish of its own accord without grasping onto it or its intentional object. The bottom of the page, conceptually unstructured awareness, which is non-dual from the phenomena that arise to it or in it, is regarded as the ultimate reality. And the realization of such non-dual <coughs> consciousness is the final goal of contemplative practice. And this experience a very distinction between public, external space in which physical phenomena appear to occur in private internal space in which mental phenomena appear to occur dissolves into a mysterious space which is where no man has gone before <laughs> 
which is the very non-duality between the conceptually constructed external and internal spaces. The ultimate nature of objective phenomena, therefore, is found to be none other than the ultimate nature of subjective phenomena, and that is the non-duality of appearance and awareness, and one achieves perfect realization of the state, in which there's no longer any difference between one's awareness during and after meditation. It's claimed that one's consciousness becomes boundless in terms of the scope of its knowledge, compassion, and power, which are the three aspects of enlightened of enlightened manifestation, knowledge or wisdom, compassion, and capability or power. So that's his little glimpse into uh, Vajrayana of Vipassana. So lastly, let's take a, a quick look at some of the things presented in this reading called Entering Shamatha Practice from this book called The Four Measurables, which I thought was an, an unbelievably wonderful presentation of Shamatha Practice. Bless you. So let's see. He gives, let's see, these pages are numbered, right? It's from the book, and at the bottom of page 32. That last paragraph, he says, Shamath is immensely fertile ground for developing this. This is the immeasurables, I believe. It's very useful for cultivating uh, cultivation of loving kindness and compassion, for learning to touch the world lightly, so on and so forth. He gives this example from his teacher who was worried about his student because he was practicing in a place where there are a lot of cobras. <laughs> and the guy says, the monk says, it's very kind of you to give me these some special sticks that's supposed to keep them away. But I don't need them. The cobras and I are getting along quite well. There's one living under my bed and behind the door. <laughs> Cobras, uh, humans are not their natural play, prey, rather, so if you don't aggress against them, they don't aggress against you, and you live happily ever after with your cobras. <laughs> Imagine not having cobras living in your hut. <laughs> okay. And, and they're like cats because they like heat, so they curl up with you in bed. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's but if you're dreaming the kick, then the cat claws you or the cobra bites you. <laughs> that's dangerous, yeah. Um, he goes through the same three qualities in a very uh, extensive and helpful way, starting on page 34, relaxation, stability, and vividness. <clears throat> He extols the virtues of lying down again, supine position, and gives some helpful hints on posture. Um, on the bottom of page 36, the next big shift in practice is to move from relaxation to a sense of continuity, which is the beginning of developing stability, from breath to breath to breath. At this point, Gross excitation is the main problem. 
the onslaught of thoughts, the waterfall stage. At the end of that paragraph on the next page on the top, it says subduing gross excitation entails staying on the object with greater continuity for longer and longer periods, 5, 10, 15 sections, second, seconds onward. When you uh, move towards stability, it's important to approach it gently and not try to like really force things as he did, as he recounts in his own personal experience without having proper guidance at the time. He just sort of tried to force his mind into focus, into concentration. And instead, the most important thing is continuity. Have a sense of continuity in the practice, both during and after, in between sessions. And he uses the image of the gardener, just like a Chauncey Gardner, and being here, tending to them like a gardener has planted a little stand of redwood trees, and he uses redwood trees because they're my favorite trees. But I think also because, uh, as we know, redwood trees live for a very long time, so they grow very slowly. So you have to be very patient. Next paragraph, so first main paragraph. Paragraph 38, shaman to practice, once you stabilize, establish stability within relaxation, then you can apply more concerted effort. So until then, you're not like really f pushing, which is not a, a good phrase, concerted effort. This should be a fine-tuned effort, not a gross muscular effort. Aim to sustain somewhat greater continuity but without the body of mind tightening up. When you're free of gross excitation, even temporarily, there's a common stability in your awareness acting like the ballast of a ship. <clears throat> when you have relatively good continuity in which you simply don't lose the object, perhaps for 5, 10, 15, 20 seconds, he says minutes. <laughs> I'm being a little more realistic. Uh, or maybe even longer, <clears throat> then it's almost certain that laxity will appear and set in. It may feel like a complacency, a settling in. It's called sinking. <laughs> you do it in the sink. Uh, like sinking back into an easy chair, saying, well, I guess this is what's supposed to happen, what I'm supposed to do at that point. And you just like sink in and close your eyes. At this point, we need to recognize the task is nowhere near finished. There's a third ingredient without which we'll never get to shamato or open up the full capacity of the mind, and this, this is a vividness, is the final crucial component. And he says the other, in the next paragraph, a couple of sentences in, there's a strong temptation to seek out vividness too soon gives you a high in the old-fashioned 60s sense of the term <laughs> of like you know everything's so bright and green <laughs> there's a pleasure in it <clears throat> and everything becomes extraordinarily interesting but if the vividness lacks an underlying stability then poof it's all gone it's fragile and tends to collapse very easily so <clears throat> because the vividness is so enticing, it is generally sound advice to develop stability first. Likewise, it's usually helpful to emphasize relaxation before stability. So relaxation, stability, vividness. Um, 
and let's see in the next paragraph generalizations sign not everybody's a beginner and even those who may be starting fresh in the practice sometimes develop quite quickly if in the course of a session your sense of ease is sustained you're mindful you maintain focus on the object with stability and the continuity is really quite good you may find yourself beginning to sink into the object <clears throat> this is a premature phasing out of duality merging with the object in a way that's not useful like slipping down into mud but it feels like you're merging with it so it feels like you're, you're doing the right thing it feels cool at that point it's time to exert more effort and increase vividness the practice then becomes a dance enhancing the vividness but not at the cost of the stability such as it was a dance to bring in greater stability but not at the cost of relaxation skip me to the next paragraph when continuity is established sinking into laxity is the main challenge and if laxity goes farther it progresses to lethargy in which you just feel heavy beyond lethargy is sleep when you begin to nod off with laxity you've just lost the edge you're not falling asleep yet when you find the first trace of laxity setting in it's time then to attend more closely to take a greater interest in the object of your meditation you sharpen your attention <clears throat> or it's time to bring in some outside help such as an electric shock from a nearby outlet or you can imagine flooding your body with light or if you find yourself even a little on the warm side take off some clothing drink a cool glass of water wash your face with cold water do the ice challenge is that what it's called the bucket of ice of course make sure that you have enough sleep you know we all do this we don't get enough sleep and then we meditate and wonder why we fall asleep <laughs> hmm. uh if lex laxity or lethargy become chronic go back to discursive meditation for a while like loving kindness or mindfulness of the body like body scans things like that attend to subjects that inspire you that uplift and invigorate the mind if you find that none of these work then you may want to switch objects altogether breath awareness is good for a lot of people but not for everyone for those who visualize fairly easily there's another whole route to shamatha through visualization we don't usually talk about this in our tradition but visualization is the common way of achieving shamatha in the tibetan tradition uh, if you're practicing visualization and the treatment of laxity straightforward you just put another hundred volts into your visualized object add another few hundred arms to the deity and brighten up the illumination Oh, then he does this Q and A. He sort of reiterates the various points he went through in the Q and A. At the bottom of forty-two. It's also helpful to bring a lot of light into the practice meditate in a brighter environment a place where the light is softly bright inside as well generate light in the practice 
figure out how do you illuminate internally, illuminate your mind internally. That may not be immediately clear, pun intended, to us. Uh, with your imagination, suffuse your body with light and then let it spread out from the body. When the mind closes down, it needs to be uh, countered with effort. Rather than relaxing into the problem, bring in some high-voltage awareness. Let's see. Uh, skipping the question, he says, those are two different questions. The disengagement from the body is just fine. The practice of bringing light into your body of, uh, of light is a preamble. When the mind starts to enter more deeply into the meditative object, the sense of having a body at all will fall away, in which case you don't need to use the body of light. So I don't know if people have experienced the sensation of like losing track of your body. But... And then uh, it talks about like working with pain, and in some traditions they sort of push through pain, uh, but in the Tibetan tradition, uh, would they place little or no value on physical pain in meditation? They say if it hurts, move. We've got enough problems in our life without inviting physical pain into our meditation practice. So it's not meant to be like this contest of how much endurance, enduring pain. <clears throat> uh, but at the same time, towards the end of that paragraph, it says, don't move at the earliest sign of discomfort. It would be good to be able to increase the bubble of comfort a little each time. Stretching that duration will give you more leeway. And then he says, you know, even the Buddha, he never said, you know, like, push yourself even so that, you know, no pain, no gain. He never really said that. <laughs> Uh, he's talked about meditation as being joyful, and from that, insight arises. Let's see, on uh, page 45. Oh, so when progresses in the practice, you may be encouraged to examine whether there is any eye present in the phenomena you're observing. Oh, so I'm sorry. At the, at the bottom of 44, <clears throat> interesting discussion of Vipassana. I guess he did a little uh, bashing, so to speak, of the MVM last time, modern Vipassana movement. But there's little, uh, I found this a little clear. Vipassana, as it's currently taught in Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka, attempts to emphasize simple mindfulness, being thoroughly in the present and letting your awareness be as free as possible without any conceptual overlay, including judgments, classifications, and especially emotional responses. And if you've looked into the current Vipassana Insight Meditation Center, um, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, any of those, that's the exactly how it's taught. You simplify your awareness as much as possible, honing your mindfulness to a fine key, whatever comes up, be it birds, singing, and so forth. You watch without judgment, without grasping, without conceptual elaboration. This gives you a much clearer awareness of what's taking place in the moment, and it does yield a type of insight and enormously useful. It's also essentially very simple. As you progress, you may be encouraged to examine whether there's any eye present in phenomena you're observing, whether you find anything static or stable, where everything is in state of flux. This is not analyzing or philosophizing. It is a mode of inquiry. 
Vipassana is an inside practice and traditionally it really doesn't an inquiry into the nature of reality. In contrast, shamatha does not involve inquiry, even though some of the methodologies such as breath awareness may be similar. Shamatha is a honing of the jewel of attention. So in other words, the Vipassana tradition, as we know it today, the contemporary, focuses on insight from the start. Uh, although they do, along the way, present what we would call shamatha. Uh, skipping a two sentences, he says, in Vipassana, if you find laxity arising, you simply note it. You don't try to c counteract it or do anything about it at all. <clears throat> he says that because that's different than in the Tibetan or Indian uh, Tibetan tradition of Shamatha, where you do try to counteract, obviously, laxity. If you find your mind is getting turbulent, you just note, oh, there are a lot of thoughts. You're succeeding right there, and you're not continuing working on an agenda as in shamatha. So in other words, shamatha in this tradition has an agenda. That's a distinction in the, the qualitative experience of the two types of meditation. Skipping a few sentences, vipassana can be a superb foundation for shamatha, just as shamatha can give you the stability and vividness you need to really benefit from insight. For some people, it may be more effective to do mindfulness continuously and do very little sitting meditation. If you can develop, can develop the kind of mindfulness that blankets the whole day, then you will really have some capital to invest if you choose to do a shamatha, actual formal shamatha practice. So it's interesting, you know, just being mindful all the time. It's a very helpful practice. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, continuing on. On page 47, he distinguishes between mindfulness and introspection, which we've seen before. Quality, introspection is the quality control in the factory, while mindfulness is attending to the meditative object. Introspection is attending to the meditating mind, checking out how it's going. Introspection is not on call all the time. It's only when it's necessary to support mindfulness that we bring in introspection. And if we keep bringing in the introspective quality of like checking ourselves, then it's not that helpful. Uh, so on page 48, the first, second full paragraph, introspection needs to be more frequent in the earlier phases, both towards body and mind, but eventually you learn to rest and stable posture and introspection will no longer be necessary for the body, yes, for the mind. As you progress, in, introspection is not needed so often, but it, it must become more educated and more acute or more subtle. The types of problems to attend to become more subtle, such as subtle laxity and excitation. If you do the practice with some continuity, there's a possibility of actually getting better at it. Um, skip into the next paragraph. When you get to a point in your meditation where gross excitation doesn't arise anymore, you may still experience subtle excitation, which is the background chatter that appears around the edges of your attention, even as you remain focused on the object. It may entail mental chit-chat or imagery. Introspection remains intermittent but has to be enhanced at that point to become aware of that background noise, that subtle excitation. 
on the next page 49, the first full paragraph, by the time you move through gross and subtle excitation and encountered, sorry, countered both gross and subtle laxity, you're on easy street. From that point, you no longer need introspection. In fact, introspection then becomes a nuisance and detracts from the meditation. Skipping to the next paragraph, note that introspection is auto referential kind of inner monitoring when introspection is no longer needed becomes the problems for which it was designed are no longer present at that point the reified sense of subject object dichotomy begins to break down so that a heavy sort of uh, watcher sense dualistic sense of a watcher dissolves you're left with just the experience the event mindfulness taking place with continuity and with vividness and it's from that space that you you move right into the actual accomplishment of shamatha. That is an advanced state, but you, you will almost certainly experience facsimiles of that state prior to achieving it. So we get little glimpses of it or brief tastes when you know for yourself that for a while at least there's no longer a sense of the meditator. Shamatha is a catalyst for mental events. You're bound to experience creativity serving in shamatha. So he gives a, what I thought was a helpful discussion of like, what do we do with the, with these insights that arise in our practice? Page 51, the first full paragraph, says, probably won't have a dozen valuable insights per session. The keyword is valuable. As you can probably remember them without, so you can probably remember them without jotting them down. In my experience, it's enough to just hold the spark of it. When you come out of the meditation, you can let that spark reignite. Of course, if it's just too hot to handle and you're too excited to meditate, then go with it. You may get a full symphony orchestra with all the individual parts clearly audible, such as Mozart had. Uh, just do whatever you like with it, and then come back with a sense of completion, you know, like get it out and write it down or whatever. The bottom of the page on 51, some of the material that surfaces likely to be traumatic and bring a lot of agitation memories that stir guilt, fear, rage, resentment. As these memories, images, emotions come up, they become your challenge. And this is a major event in the practice. It should not be regarded as a nuisance or a problem, but as a crucial and prominent facet of the practice. That means you learn to acknowledge it, confront it, bring understanding to it, accept it, and release it. It doesn't mean that you hold on to it or let it overwhelm you. We don't need to process every bad experience we've had in our life. We would never finish. <laughs> Simply releasing is optimal, but at the time, the experience may be more tenacious for that. So you know, how do we deal with the, the really heavy shit that comes up in, in intensive meditation practice where you can't just label it thinking and come back and you need to actually spend some some time with it. Um, dealing with problems. <clears throat> if your practice is wholesome and enjoyable, maintain a sense of buoyancy and well-being, the chances are extremely remote that any problems that are catalyzed will become entrenched. So the keys are like having a joyful, uh, light quality in the practice and not like a forced pushing quality. Uh, I've never heard of such a case. Almost every case I've encountered of persistent problems in shamatha practice is characterized by a lack of buoyancy and a reliance on sheer discipline. Typically, when shamatha practice goes wrong, it gets heavy, frustrating, isolated, barren, and dark. Uh, 
you may feel like you have to muscle your way through, and of course that makes it worse. Um, talks about physical pain and how part of it is that the mind uses it to entertain itself, creates physical pain. And uh, let's see. On uh, page 53, the first full paragraph, if you, if you ever experience a dense, dark, tight, fisty quality, especially in the area of your heart or center of your chest, back off immediately. <laughs> <clears throat> back off just as you found a snake, as if you found a snake in your life. It's really important not to pursue meditation if this happens, as great damage can be done. Do something cheerful instead. Go eat pizza. <laughs> ice cream, listen to your favorite music, do whatever you can to bring lightness back in and get out of that space quickly. <laughs> Why would this happen? Heart center is closely connected to mental consciousness. There's a vital energy in the body you can experience in tactile way, even though it is not a physical in the Western sense and so forth and so on. On the next page, 54, the Tibetan, the first full paragraph, Tibetans describe this as bad energy. That's what it feels like. It's dangerous because the energy can be lodged in the heart and stay there, and that may lead to chronic depression or even worse. Uh, it's unfortunate it happens unnecessarily to too many meditators. You can work through it, but it's difficult. It's far better not to fall into it in the first place. If it does start, the sooner you deal with it in the ways he just mentioned, the easier it will be. How do you address it? You need to bring a lot of buoyancy and light into your life, and you probably shouldn't meditate much. Really interesting advice that, like, if you fall into this heavy, negative space, like, you just take a break from your practice. So I'm confused. Is he talking about being overcome with depression or having a heart attack? Which one? What, what? <laughs> I don't, it sounds like he, maybe he's talking about like an overwhelming depression. Yes. Is that what he, yeah. Okay. Or like constriction in the heart area. That's like an emotional constriction or fear. It could be like gripping fear. Yeah. That, that's what I thought at first, like a heart attack, like anxiety, but. Anxiety, yeah, anxiety, or just like over or loneliness. Um, you know, meditation can bring up these these intense experiences. So, um, if you meditate, keep the sessions short, very light. Loving kindness practices helpful, uh, but never to the point where it gets oppressive or heavy. Keep a lightness in your life. Do things you enjoy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's an interesting presentation on that topic. Uh, it says there's other experiences. Uh, next paragraph, similar problems associated with the heart center can happen sometimes when breath awareness with a focus on the nostrils concentrates too much energy in your head. You may find your head feeling full and bloated like a pumpkin, <laughs> or you may experience a feeling of pressure or headaches. If that happens, drop the technique for a while to bring the awareness down to the abdomen or diffuse it generally throughout the whole body, but get it out of the head. Uh, takes a aspirin and give, go to bed. Uh, let's see, next paragraph on 55. On the other hand, you may experience many unusual physical sensations in shamatha that are not at all cause for concern. People commonly report bizarre experiences such as distortions of the sense of physical space, illusions of movement or falling, a sense that the limbs are contorted or ringing in the ears. 
may feel as if your body's swelling up like the Pillsbury Doughboy, or may feel rooted to the earth in general when such experiences involve the whole body or are peripheral focused in the limbs. They're not danger signs, i.e. he's saying as long as it's not the heart center, but quite harmless. The traditional instructions are to ignore such phenomena, hard as that may be, by paying attention to a sensation of becoming or becoming fixated on you perpetuate it, and then you can turn it into an obstacle. The reason behind these is that shaman has a profound effect on the vital energy system in the body. We're doing something the mind is not accustomed to. And uh, as you concentrate and channel the mind in an unfamiliar way, especially if you go to greater depths and you previously have, this is bound to have effect on the vital energies and they start to rearrange themselves. And this continues all through the course of developing shamatha all the way to its culmination when you actually attain shamatha. There's a radical shift in the vital energies. So it basically accomplishes what the inner yoga practices of the Tumo accomplish just through shamatha. And let's see, I think that's about it. Uh, he's on the next page, 56. If you're not sure about something experiencing might be problematic, you can <clears throat> check with your teacher. One is your inside teacher, you know, sort of look at it objectively, and another is an external teacher. Consult with somebody. Come and talk to a teacher. Get it early. Nip it in the bud. Don't let it linger and become an embedded problem. <clears throat> and he recommends alternate shamatha with loving kindness. Meditation can always help. It's just great advice. And um, at the bottom of that page, simple technique of bringing light into meditation can be extremely helpful. Developing a sense of your own body is a body of light. A very calm, soothing, transparent light. We don't often like talk about such practices, but... Uh, Tibetans do all the time, actually. And uh, so working with light. And uh, finally, at the very end, another practical suggestions that Tibetan lamas offer, especially for a type of focused, concentrated practice in which the mind is drawn very much inward, is to spend time between sessions in a place where you can gaze out for a long distance to a very far horizon if you can find such a place is ideal any comments or questions or suggestions was that helpful interesting boring thoughtful different same anything any reaction at all <laughs> it's just so interesting to like compare this to you know like things from profound treasury and stuff because it's a lot of it is different <laughs> yeah a lot of it is very different yeah. yeah um so i'm trying to sort of figure out how to navigate it and what to try and what to not to try and stuff but it's yeah. very interesting what do other people think about that the the aspect of difference or not and uh whether how how to incorporate or not into our own practice. Well, that's your homework. Think about that, and we'll we'll revisit that next week. How's that? Any final thoughts on that? Did I cut anyone off? <laughs> I just I, I like the distortions you get. I think those are fun and funny, but I don't like, 
think they're magical or anything. I realize, yeah, your mind does that, but they're, they can be fun. <laughs> Mildly entertaining. Yeah. 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 Your head gets really big or small. And okay. <clears throat> the grains in the wood on the floor start moving around. Like, oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> if I carpet. Squint, does it do it more? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Various carpets at places where you do, like, retreats will become uh, very famous. Yeah. Where was that? Aspects. There was a place like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it. I think it. Garrison uh, had this one carpet, the big carpet in the main hall. That was quite colorful. Anyway, so let's uh, do our dedication and close. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Okay, thank you. Next thank week we you. have uh, the nature of the mind in the in the tradition, much. which should be interesting. Little little <laughs> focus on that, which should be fun. Thank you thank very you. much. Nice to see you. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.